Welcome back to another edition of the Fantasy Alarm Fantasy Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Conway, at Colby R. Conway on Twitter. And with me, as always, uh, my regular partner here is Matt Sells, at The Salesman on Twitter. So, Matt, how are things going for you here lately, and um, how have things been just overall? Uh, things are good here. Um, it'd be a little better if we had some actual movement on baseball uh, going on. But, you know, they're, they're talking... They'll, they'll iron stuff out, but um, luckily I have NASCAR to keep me uh, occupied as well. Plus, uh, all of my normal fantasy baseball stuff is still happening. That's why we're here, too. We're still talking fantasy baseball, pretending like nothing's any different. Um, and uh, so I see you did a, a draft last week, huh? Best ball? Yep, we sure did. And that's pretty much what we're doing here with uh, Fantasy Alarming. Yep, you know, maybe in reality, baseball might be a... Uh uh size 24 bolded question mark but we're still talking about it from the fantasy realm so we have a ton of best ball drafts going on um if you see if you follow howard on twitter at roto buzz guy he's got a bunch over at rt sports that you can sign up to draft with him we also got some uh bb10s over on the nfbc um that i am in the majority of those and a lot of the fantasy alarm crew jump in and draft for those as well so these are great opportunities to get ready for when we have baseball in reality, and you'll have your home drafts and where you want to crush your friends, family members, colleagues, random people from some Facebook group that you've joined and you created a fantasy baseball league from, whatever. We got all of that information at fantasyalarm.com. We got the cheat sheet, the draft guide, all the goodies, everything that you will need there. But also, make sure you get involved in some best ball drafts. Like Matt said, Howard and I live streamed a BB10 on Thursday. I believe it was March Third, I believe, was a date for that. Um, just want to talk about that for a little bit here. So, Matt, you were not in that draft, but you will be in a live stream coming up um, on this Thursday. So that is the 8, 9, 10th, it looks like, by a rough count. So March 10th over on RT Sports. Join Matt Howard and a bunch of other Fantasy Alarm folks in a best ball draft over there. But like I said, I did one with Howard last week. I came out of the draft of the third pick. Howard was at the seventh spot. I opened with Vladdy Jr., Brandon Woodruff, Zach Wheeler, Starling Marte, Wilson Contreras. So through the first couple of rounds, you know, we see I kind of wanted a good floor, essentially. So Vladdy Jr., Woodruff, Wheeler, Marte, they all handled that. One of the biggest things in the first couple of rounds, uh, we talked about this a little bit on the live stream, but this is the first draft that I have seen where Josh Hader was not the first closer off the board. Uh, with the first pick in the fourth round, uh, Liam Hendricks went as the first closer off the board. So uh, that individual, I kind of asked what the thought process was there. Just explain that he's more of a Hendricks than a hater guy, or a hater guy. Not a hater, hater, but he just happens to like Hendricks and what he can do uh, with Chicago. So we talked about it. I'm just in agreement of if it's your guy, you get your guy, ADP be damned. So that was kind of the first shocking thing for me. What do you think about Hendricks over here? Um, I don't really have a problem with it. I mean, those two guys are clearly 1A and 1B of the closer realm. Um, I think the one knock on Hater that you could theoretically say would be that he's still consistently in trade talks come midseason, right? Everybody still believes that Josh Hader will at some point be moved because um, Milwaukee needs some help in their, um, you know, farm system and whatnot. A premium closer can can fetch you some pretty nice uh, returns. Just look at what it did for uh, the Yankees with getting Glaber Torres. Um, 
so I think that's the only knock is that maybe if he gets moved, his situation isn't quite as known at that point. Um, but I, I mean, there it's splitting hairs between them, right? If you're a Hendricks guy, go with Hendricks. If you're a Hater guy, go with Haters. You're really splitting hairs between the two. And and that's really, I mean, you look like their their uh, X ERAs. Hendricks was a one nine three. Hater was a two point one eight last year. Hendricks actually posted a 14.3 K per nine. Hater was a 15.6 as if 14.3 is bad by any means. Like well, they're both fine. If you're a hater guy, you go for it. So let me ask you this. Do you think it might have anything to do with the fact that now there's an extra actual hitter in the NL lineups that hater hasn't necessarily had to get used to? Not that he always comes in in the bottom of the order when it would be the pitcher anyway, but it's a little longer lineup in the NL now than he's typically used to while as Hendricks playing in the AL has already been used to that. Could that be, is there any question there for you? There, I mean, there could be, when you think about it, like, sure. I I would highly doubt when Hader comes into a game in a ninth inning that he's going to face a pitcher. Kind of like you said, the other team won't leave the pitcher in there. However, one would assume that the opposition now in their lineup with nine spots with a DH, assuming they start their nine best hitters, you know, if if a if a pitcher spot is in there, you now have a replacement guy. So now maybe you're getting you're facing the eleventh or twelfth best bat against the you know compared to the ninth. So that could be in play. But I mean, you you nailed it here. You're you're really splitting hairs. It's like oh, like who should I take between Fernando Tatis and Vladdy Jr.? Most likely, you're not going to be wrong. Right. With either of these two options. I mean, sure, we've seen closers kind of fall flat in recent years, but not much to suggest with these two. Hendricks allowed more home runs last year, but Hater's arsenal and how he uses fastball, being a fly ball guy, kind of lends itself to potential home run issues. You're splitting errors between these two. We're we're almost trying to find something between these two at this point when they're 1A and 1B. Yeah, agreed. Um, I guess my only shock here in the I'm going to say first round of the draft, is that Turner didn't go number one. I would have thought that Trey Turner would go number one um, yeah. in just about every format. Um, I mean, he's got as much pop as Tatis, but probably more speed. He's in arguably a better lineup, uh, better hitter park. And, you know, the, there's still a question in my mind if Tatis's shoulder is still really going to hold up. I mean, I know he put up real good numbers last year, but there's still a question to uh, to me about, is his shoulder going to be 100% all year? So that's kind of the only shock in the early round here, is Turner going second to Tatis. I I agree. Uh, I'm a big Trey Turner guy. And I once I saw Tatis go one, I was hoping Turner would go one more. I thought maybe a you know potential 40-plus homer guy in Vladdy would be appealing to uh, – Ani Sridhar at two, or maybe Jose Ramirez's potential or really ceiling of 25, 25 plus, 30, 30, wherever he can get to would be there. But I was happy to get Vladdy. I would have loved Trey Turner. Don't get me wrong. Um, so those are, that's kind of how that, those first couple picks um, shook out. And then in the fourth round, Howard and I had a discussion about this. Uh, John and Pemba took Byron Buxton in the fourth round. I said, yay. Howard said, nay. Um, now Howard is a very well-known, not necessarily Buxton hater, but just in terms of maybe not being his personal cup of tea, whereas I'm pushing him for MVP votes every single year, despite what his final stat line is. So be the deciding factor here. I said, yes, Howard said, no, 
where do you fall on Byron Buxton here in a best ball draft where it looks like he was the third pick in the fourth round? So I have been witness to, you know, you and Greg Jewett, uh, you know, previously of FA, would go toe-to-toe on the Buxton discussion. And I would typically side with Jewett on that one and now Bender. Um, but then last year I went and bought <laughs> Byron Buxton in my home auction league because he was going for a little too cheap. And so I took the shot. And what happened? He played less than 100 games. Now, the games he played – Excellent production. However, it was like less than a half a season of, of actual baseball that he played. Um, I think the fourth round is a touch high. You're basically needing him to do something that he hasn't done in like six years, which is play 100 games. Um, he just never seems to be healthy. Even when he came back last year from the muscle strain, he had a freak thing Um happened to him with like a tooth or something. So he's not even, you know, allergic to getting hurt in weird ways. Um, the upside is clearly there to make him a fourth round talent is the actual floor and the value there. No, I don't think so. I would have, I would have waited, um, just a bit, obviously just before him, Whit Merrifield came off the board just after him, guys like Paul Goldschmidt and Austin Riley, um, and then you had Josh Hader there. I, I I don't know. I I probably at that point would have rather had Starling Marte, who went to you in the fourth round, um, than Byron Buxton. And that's it's a it's a cup of tea thing in best ball formats. Well, I mean in redraft formats, I still love pushing Buxton up the board anyway. So it's no surprise in best ball where you can take on a little bit more risk because you can draft, you can draft 11 outfielders with your next, you know, 13 or 14 picks. And then if Bucks ends up getting hurt, you have plenty of opportunity there to fill those spots. But I didn't mind it as much. Um, I was okay to get Starling Marte towards the back end of the fourth round. So I think it worked out for most. And like I said, Buxton is probably the quintessential, your guy pick yeah. in drafts. You got to believe, you got to believe either in the talent or, if you're a betting person, it's, yeah, this is the year we're going to get a hundred plus games for bucks in this year. And I would love, I would love for a full year of health for this guy in a full season, just to, just to see what, what kind of numbers he put up. What'd you say? Stay, I said, if he stays healthy, his wallet would love a full year of Byron Buxton too. Cause With the man's contract paid if, <laughs> if he stays healthy. It's in there. It is in there. He just has to stay healthier. Like I told Howard, he just has to stay away from uh, chefs that might have a vendetta against him and maybe drafted him and he hurt him in past years with that overcooked steak that uh, hurt his tooth. But uh, another thing that was interesting, so along with Hendricks going in the fourth round, that same team ended up drafting four catchers. Now, I know the first catcher, Dalton Varsha, will have outfield eligibility, so he can kind of move in both spots. Um, but later on the draft, Sean Murphy, James McCann, Francisco Mejia. So when you're looking at the catcher position in BB10s, your top scoring catcher of that week goes to your overall score. Howard and I kind of talked about where, what number of catchers you're going to follow. So, for example, you look at some other teams. Howard took Adley Rutschman and Jacob Stalling. So he only took two. I had taken Wilson Contreras, and then I waited till the, the uh, penultimate round and took Jonah Heim. Then you got like John Mpemba, who took Gary Sanchez, Omar Navarez, and Tyler Stevenson, who also have first base eligibility. So catcher is not glamorous. The offensive options are limited. 
How many catchers do you think in a best ball? Like in this one, it's one catcher. Your highest scoring catcher that week goes into your lineup. You have the utility as well. So I guess technically two, but you're probably not going to have a second catcher in there. Um, Howard and I both pretty much agreed. If we get two that we're comfortable with, I'm probably sticking with two. I'd probably go with Impemba and go with three. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm used to playing in a two-catcher league, right? My home league is a two-catcher league. I tend to prefer two-catcher leagues. I know that catcher is not a great position, and there's been calls for, hey, let's just get rid of it because nobody seems to like it. But why eliminate things when they're tough, right? Like, tight end isn't great in fantasy football, and everybody puts up with having to play one of them, if not two. And we even create leagues to reward tight end premium. Um, so for me, the guy that took four catchers didn't really take four catchers. He took three and another guy who kind of counts as a catcher. Stolton Varsho has outfield out, uh, eligibility. I think he actually played in the outfield more than he was behind the plate, um, for Arizona last year. And that's probably going to be the case again this year. Um, and Varsho, where he took him is actually, in my opinion, great value uh, for a guy with catcher outfield eligibility, and he's got some speed, he's got some pop, doesn't hit for average like Real Muto does, but the stat line at the end of the day might be pretty equivalent to Real Muto. Um, so I think that's kind of his play there, is that Varsho is really more of an outfielder for him. And then Sean Murphy, I really like at catcher. James McCann is solid, and then who the heck knows with Francisco Mejia, uh, he hasn't really ever been the same since he had that long hitting streak in the minors. Um, So, you know, I'm probably fine with the three because, let's face it, these guys get injured reasonably uh, frequently with just, you know, all of the contact they take behind the plate and trying to catch stuff and then all that good stuff. So if you're with two and you get one guy injured, then you basically start punting points and stats for the week. Um, so I'm I'm fine with the four based on who he took. If it was like Will Smith instead of Varsho, probably wouldn't have done four. But I get it with Varsho because of his eligibility. And in full transparency, in the 30th round where I took Tyrone Taylor, I was hoping Jorge Alfaro fell, that my second catcher would be a little bit, basically a catcher with an outfield Knicks, just hoping that Alfaro can find his way to DH at bats in San Diego. And one last quick thing on this. I want to get to talk about some keeper strategies and then some ADP talk as well. Just a quick thing. I know I got your guy, Sonny Gray, in the 15th round, which is great value. However, last starter I took before him was Chris Sale in round six. I added Ryan Presley in round nine. Um, But I took Woodruff, Wheeler, and Sale, three starters in the first six rounds. And then I didn't take another one until round 15. Did I wait too long? I don't think so. It's interesting. I don't think so, and here's why. Woodruff is a bona fide ace, Um, so you have an ace there. Wheeler is arguably the best pitcher in the Philly rotation, right? Um, I know Aaron Nola is technically the ace, but Wheeler is better than him. So you basically have two ace-caliber guys. Chris Sale came back from injury last year. He looked solid. If he gets back to what we've previously seen and is the strikeout Chris Sale, then you've got two aces and a really good SP2. That's fine to start with. And then not only did you back it up with Sonny Gray, looks like you also got John Gray, who I like. 
Steven Matz, we talked about on, I think, last week's podcast, um, that you like his upside. So I think that's that's really good pitching depth. Jesus Lazardo, who knows what's going to happen, closer and Gregory Soto. Um, Patrick Corbin, why not? Corey Kluber, why not? If those two dudes actually figure stuff out and are healthy, then value in the you know last handful of rounds. But I don't think you waited too long, uh, to be honest. I mean, I would put your top guys up there with, uh, like, John and Pemba, who took Walker Buehler in the second, and then Flaherty, Darvish, and McClanahan in back-to-back-to-back rounds. That's pretty good. I would put your guys a tick, just a tick below that. So, and it's, I think, in my opinion, better than Howard's starters. Well, right of now. course. Of course. I mean, the Logan Gilbert pickup has really hurt. Uh, I was, I really wanted Gilbert in. I wanted to go Gilbert and Gray there in the 14th and 15th. It didn't quite happen to work. But these best ball drafts, regardless of what strategy you want to employ, I'm typically not a two starter in the first three rounds, let alone three starters in the first six rounds. But I wanted to try something here in a best ball draft. And again, Join this week's uh, live stream on RT Sports with Matt, Howard, um, and a bunch of other Fantasy Alarm folks in there most likely. So you can tune in and listen to Matt and Howard dissect different picks, different teams, just, you know, shoot the breeze and just have a good time. And of course, we'll always have these BB10s going on uh, over at the NFBC as well. So make sure you join them. I have information on those in a pinned tweet at Colby R. Conway, and you can sign up for Howard's uh, RT Sports Best Balls. Uh, He's got it somewhere on his Twitter page at the Roto Buzz guy. So Matt, we want to talk about keeper leagues. We talk about redraft. We talk about best ball. Um, there's keeper leagues out there. I have keeper leagues with home leagues with friends from college and friends from high school that we continue to play in. And we have to set our keepers. It was supposed to be this upcoming week. And I believe they pushed it back because of the season. Um, obviously, keeper strategy is you get to keep players from one year to the next. There's a lot of different elements you could say into it so you know like the one league i'm in it's very points heavy it's literally home runs and strikeouts so starling Marte isn't great in that league because a lot of this stuff comes from you know stolen base and stuff like that so i would be more inclined to keep someone who has a potential to hit 30 home runs versus Marte's 30 40 stolen bases um you got to know your points you got to know your league's rules and the league dynamics but what are some of the other things we need to consider when setting our keepers like another thing that comes to mind quickly for me is like do you have like contracts is youth good or you basically is it a keeper league but you really play year to year um like do you keep like a jared kalenic over like a i don't know like a a Corey seager type because you want to play the long game versus like that so kind of just talk keeper strategy and just some things that people need to be aware of yeah so um i know in my main keeper league my keepers were due march 1st um so those have been turned in for about a week already um and that's just our standard deadline every year regardless of the season the only year we didn't do the league in the last 35 years was 2020 because obviously covid um and so you know i've seen a lot of questions in discord uh for keeper values and i know colby's answered a bunch of them i've answered a bunch of them uh you know, a few other guys like Ray uh, have answered a bunch. And usually what a lot of people are asking us is, okay, I have to give up this round of pick to keep this guy. Is it worth it? Or this guy costs this much money this year to keep. Is it worth it? And in my league, you can keep a keeper for up to three years, but you're not locked in. It's a year by year decision based on 
you know, if their price, you know, is good enough for you to decide to keep them. Um, and a lot of your keepers come from, we have the ability to draft prospects. And then when they come up, you can burn them. So like right now I've had Walker Bueller for three years. Um, well, longer than that, because I didn't use him as rookie year, but that's a longer story. Um, and then, you know, so after three years of having them, you got to let them go and they go back into the draft pool um, to go for whatever Walker Bueller is going to go for next year. However, a, a dynamic that is often not talked about by folks asking questions and then also people in the industry are, have you figured out who other people are likely to keep? Okay. When I'm doing my keepers for my, now this is a 21 team league, so it's different than a lot of folks. Um, but one thing I do when I decide if I'm going to, if I'm on the fence on somebody is I try to look through who's going to likely be kept at that position. And here's why, because in a vacuum, is this guy worth $10 or not, is one question. However, if you throw him back and now you find out that based on whoever everybody else kept, the guy you threw back is now the best guy at that position, that $10 is a huge bargain because that guy is now going to go for a lot more money since he's the number one available guy at that spot. So anybody that doesn't have a guy at that spot is now going to be willing to spend more than what you could have kept him for. Right. So that's kind of a key that, and, and when you ask the questions, we don't need the whole roster breakdown or anything. I just want people to do this exercise and try to go through. And, you know, if you've been in the league for a while, you tend to know who's going to keep who and who likes these guys and um, who's a little bit more willing to spend a little more on keepers than chance it in the, the draft. And I don't mean just pure money. I just mean in draft capital. Um, and along with that, where you're picking in your draft also matters, right? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had somebody ask me if they would give up a first-round pick for, for I, I don't remember who the player was, but they had first or second-round value, right? And so theoretically, the answer is yes you keep that guy and lock in a first-round pick. However, the question was, well, where are you picking in the draft? And it was late in the first. So that meant, yeah, you're going to lock him in because if you let him go, somebody in front of you is going to keep him, right? But if you're picking first, there's no reason to tie yourself up with the first-round pick because you're guaranteed to get that guy back. You can get whoever you want to when you have the first overall pick. So... Keeping some of these things in mind, like who's keeping who and where you're picking, can oftentimes help you decide one way or the other on a guy that you might be on the fence about. And not all first-round picks are created equal, essentially, right. what you said. You know, the one the first pick in the first round is vastly different than the eighth pick in the first round. And when you're, when you're talking about keepers and knowing who other people are going to keep, because that kind of gives you an idea of, like, positional that or positions that are valued or players that are valued more – the easy way to equate this would be talking like positional scarcity amongst positions in right. regular redraft formats. Like when you look at like, even in this best ball draft, I took Wilson Contreras in the fifth round, some hitters that went after him, Nolan Arenado, Corey Seager, Francisco Lindor, are those guys going to have probably more lucrative 
numbers in a vacuum. I would, I mean, I surely hope so. I love Contreras, but his numbers as a catcher provide a greater edge than, you know, the other positions. That's what it comes down to with keepers as well. If it's, it's the same thing when you see like in fantasy football and people are like, do I keep Kyle Pitts this year after last year's, you know, season? Well, if Travis Kelsey, TJ Hawkinson, and all the other big name tight ends are all being kept and, that means Pitts is going to be a top two or three pick because tight end has already diminished, then yeah, you might want to, because good luck getting better than him when it comes to draft time. That's it's, it's the same art. It's the same philosophy that's tied to baseball with some of these players. And some positions are already incredibly thin to begin with like third base. Good luck after the first couple it's right. It is a barren wasteland. So same with second maybe, base. yeah, maybe you do consider keeping like a, like a second base, maybe Jose Altuve becomes more interesting than like a, uh, Giancarlo Stanton or Nick Castellanos solely because there's a billion outfielders and there's like negative four second basemen and third base is even worse. Positional scarcity is not just a redraft uh, ideology. It's it's across all formats. Yeah, and that's why, you know, if you're looking at your auction values or um, whatnot, you have to bump up for those guys, right? Like a JT Rio Muto who puts up really good numbers for a catcher if you compare them as the same, if you don't separate catchers out and you put them up against all the shortstops, you're going to get a number that's way too low for Real Muto because compared to shortstops, his numbers are average, right? But to compare to other catchers, he's off the charts. So the same thing happens with keeper values and, you know, keeper positions in terms of, you know, what draft stock you're giving up because, yeah, you can ask me if, you know, so-and-so is worth a fourth-round pick. Okay, but do you know if the five dudes ahead of them are being kept or not? Because if none of them are, then maybe you chance it. Because his ADP matches up with the fourth round. If all of them are being kept, then you have to keep them. Because there's no way you're going to get that guy back in the fourth round. Because they're now the number one dude on the list. You can't just look at rankings in a vacuum. You have to adjust. Uh, And you should do this during the draft too, by the way, this isn't just a keeper discussion. You should be tracking who's off the board at what positions because their ADP and their auction values will adjust based off of who's still left. Um, And I've done that for several years in my home league. because the first few years I didn't do it, and I was always shocked when, you know, some some backwater hit like a John Gray would come up late in the draft. And you expect him to go for maybe a dollar or two, right? But instead he's going for five, six, seven bucks because somebody needs a good starter or a reasonable starter. And he's the best one left. It's going to jump his value, right? It's basically that concept. Absolutely. And there's just there's so many elements and there's so many similarities across the different draft types while all being uniquely different. There are similarities across the bunch and different principles that come into play. And ADP can be a little misleading sometimes because arguably a synonym for ADP. It's just it's just groupthink. That's all it is. And everyone comes together with it. That's never the that should never be the deciding factor. Like, oh, I'm going to take Jack Flaherty in front of Chris Bryant because Flaherty's ADP is one pick higher. However, as we follow and we track ADP, it's nice to know it over the course of a time, but you want to look at things probably in like shorter windows. So what, we, what we're going to do here 
close out this week's podcast, just talk about some ADP risers and fallers that we have seen. The parameters that I set were from January 1st of 2022 until February 14th of 2022. And then from the 15th of February to as of this morning, as we're recording on Monday, March 7th. So a couple risers that we've seen. One of them we've already talked about with Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. He's jumped up 40 picks, so about three and a half rounds. Obviously, the Josh Jung injury has now cleared the path for Kiner-Falefa to continue his underwhelming batted ball profile, but probably provide double-digit steals and maybe double-digit homers if he gets lucky um, and should have a little bit of versatility there. But the interesting one to me, and I can't really point anything to this, and it's not sizable, but Carlos Rodon's jumped up about four picks. As far as I have seen, there haven't been too much, you know, workings or like real connections to teams. I think I might have saw a report that the Yankees were interested, but they're interested in every starter that comes out anyway. So who knows there? But Rodon, you know, big strikeout arm is the reason that he's just going up, perhaps that we're starting to see starting pitchers just continue to move up and the ability to find a dominant one outside of the first couple of rounds is just probably a little bit diminished. Yeah, I mean, I would think so. He's also a free agent, if I'm not mistaken, right? right. Um, right. So it is kind of interesting that a dude who's a free agent uh, during a lockout who's had basically no room. I mean, the White Sox didn't even offer him a qualifying offer. Um, that was probably more so because they didn't want to tie up like $18 million on him rather than, you know, the draft pick or whatever. But it is, I mean, it's a subtle move, but it is a move. And it's a guy coming off one good year, right? He managed to stay healthy, or relatively so, uh, for one year after coming off of injury. And it was a very good year, not going to lie. I mean, you know, the ERA was great. The BIP backed up the ERA. Strikeout numbers were fantastic. But it is just interesting that there's no, like, with Kiner Falefa, there was injury news that said, okay, now this guy's the starting third baseman. And by the way, he has shortstop <laughs> eligibility. With Rodon, there's none of that. So it's kind of interesting to me that there is a slight uptick for him over the last uh, several weeks. And then on the other hand, a couple fallers. Um, we talked about Kiner Falefa jumping up 40 picks. We have Eric Hosmer falling back 40 picks. So he was originally around 362 from January to the middle part of February. Now going outside of the top 400 for Eric Hosmer. So obviously he's getting up there in age. You look at some of the numbers last year, barrel rate fell back down after an increased 2020, you know, launch angle is way down. He's back to being a worm killer again, killing ground balls. Is this just essentially perhaps more people are now buying into, well, the homers are going to be maybe average at best than at first base where we need power. Hosmer's doesn't provide it. And he's almost, he's almost like the, um, the James, James Loney of a couple years ago. When he was just he's he's a non-power guy at a position filled with power, and he kind of just gets relegated to the back of the pack. Yeah, it is. I will say it is interesting to watch Hosmer drop when the NL got the DH. Right, mm -hmm. that's that's kind of interesting. But if you look at the Padres roster, I mean, it's not loaded with a ton of great bats outside of Tatis um, and Machado. But you know, Cronenworth played a decent amount of first base last year they've got a couple of dudes capable of playing second including Cronenworth and the um the uh Japanese guy that they signed or Korea I'm sorry I don't remember but the guy that they signed last offseason um who didn't play all that much he can still play second base um they've got CJ Abrams who by all accounts might be up this year 
to play some second base. So they've got a bunch of different spots they can go, and I think Hosmer's batted ball profile, everybody came back down to earth. I was like, hey, you know, there's kind of power everywhere. He doesn't really have any. Batting average is okay, but I'm not willing to sacrifice the power for an okay batting average. Um, so, yeah, I think people are just coming back down to earth on Eric Hosmer. And then another faller here, probably don't have to spend too much. We talked about him before, but Lance McCullers dropping about 20 picks, probably just around question marks around health and not really knowing where he's quite at, right? Right, yeah. he. There was a report that came out that said he either had a setback or he wasn't quite as far along as they had expected him to be. And, you know, he's got a checkered past with health to begin with. Um, I mean, inside the top 200 is still solid for a guy who strikes out a bunch of people. But, yeah, the health the health question marks are causing that drop. And then one of the more sizable drops that we've seen, Jaron Duran down 81 picks. So we're talking nearly seven rounds in a – in a 12-team draft here. So, obviously, Boston's been linked to some outfielders, like I say, a Suzuki type or just some other free agents. So, I'm assuming that plays into the drop here with Jaron Duran. But at this point, he's going back near pick 500 now. Are you interested in Duran at this point? Or is it just once Boston signs someone, once the lockout ends, he's kind of just – he's going to be lost in the – or more so relegated to a bench role? Well, so here's the interesting part about this. Um, right before the keeper deadline, I actually made a trade in my home league to get Jaron Duran, as you're aware. Uh, not just for Duran. I traded one year. I have one year left of Cease, and I couldn't extend him. So I traded the one year of Cease for one year of Teoscar Hernandez and potentially two years of Jaron Duran. Well, potentially three of Jaron Duran. Um so it was more of a value proposition for me that I could, if Duran finds his way into the lineup, then I get a cheap steals guy who might be on my roster for a couple of years. But this ADP drop has me concerned about <laughs> trading for him as a keeper. Um, yeah, I think it's probably the Seiya Suzuki news that he was rumored to say that he wanted to go to Boston when the lockout ends. But I've also seen reports that say he wants to go to Texas, too. Um, and that Texas is willing to spend a bunch of money to get them. Um, and there are still some other teams that are interested in Seiya Suzuki. So, I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing that everybody assumes that Suzuki is going there. I haven't seen any injury reports for Duran. And, in fact, coming off the Winter League and, um, you know, fall camps, his bat was the talk of those for most people. Like, his his splits... Um, in uh, his his slash line, rather, in winter ball was really good. He got back to being patient and, you know, minding the strike zone and whatnot. So it's pretty interesting to see this big of a drop for a guy who's got off-the-chart speed, which Boston needs in that lineup. Absolutely. And Suzuki's going around pick 203 per ADP from January 1st. Well, Matt, I had a couple good this or that, but we're going to save them for next week. Um, we'll hold them out there. Maybe I'll add some other ones to make it a little bit more interesting. But everyone out there, there's a lot I'm going to put on your to-do list here. First off, if you don't have the Fantasy Alarm MLB Draft Guide, make sure you get that. Get the cheat sheet, all the great content within it. Make sure you get your spot reserved for the Thursday night live stream of a uh, best ball draft over on RT Sports. Go ahead and finish third right behind 
Howard and Matt or Matt and Howard, whichever of you two is going to finish first or second. So make sure you do that. Once you do that, join in some of the BB10s we got going over on the NFBC. You can find information in the Fantasy Alarm Discord as well as on my Twitter at Colby R. Conway. That's everything you got to do this week. And then once you get through Thursday, uh, I'm not a big NASCAR guy, but I'm assuming there's a race this Sunday and Matt's going to have content for that. So whether it's DraftKings or wherever you play, Matt should have content that you can use there to win some money. So it's a full week for you fantasy alarm folk out there, but we'll go ahead and put a bow on this episode. So for Matt sells at the sales man on Twitter, I am Colby Conway. We will see you next week.